Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred. Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle of the base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. Freaking ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Middle Seats, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. I'm your conductor on this train of movies and entertainment, Andrew Ojay, and this is The Middle Seats Podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, let me show you the rest of our passengers. He's the passenger most likely to lead everyone in a sing-along of songs from the Polar Express, Mr. Nate Lungarini. <laughs> How we doing, everybody? It's great to be on the show. And it's great to be in the front of the train, you know? I would hate to be hate to be in the back of the train. What are you getting at here? Let's hear it. <laughs> in, the, in the caboose, he's the guy who's trying to get south towards North Carolina to see the family, but is on a train headed the wrong direction, even though the conductor clearly yelled that this train is headed to Buffalo, Mr. Jay Kensler. It sounds like you're talking from experience, actually. Doesn't that sound real? I've never actually been to Buffalo, yeah. but that sounded that, real. That's happened to me before. I think I was on a subway to, to Brooklyn, and I don't know. I've like I'm not really familiar with uptown and downtown, so I just got on hoping it was the right way, and it wasn't. I rode all the way up and all the way back. So it's actually happened. That's how people <laughs> die. That's how people die. Be careful. Anyway. We're glad Jake is safe and sound because he's here to record the ninth episode of the Middle Seeds Podcast. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome. We Our show is divided into three segments each week. We start the day with Lobby Talk, where one of the crew members pick a topic, and we just kind of go back and forth about it for a couple minutes, like you would talk with your friends in the lobby of a movie theater. Then we move on to the biggest news in movies and entertainment with our news segment, and then we move into our feature review, both spoilers and non-spoilers. This week, it is of the adaptation of the Agatha Christie 1930s novel, Murder on the Orient Express. So guys, how's everyone doing? Yeah, pretty doing well. Fine and dandy. Fine and dandy. <laughs> Everything's always something and dandy with Nate. Yeah. <laughs> always. Well, better than <laughs> chaotic and destructive, right? Yeah, I don't I, underestimate chaos. Chaos can be fun. It depends anyway. on what kind of chaos, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that out of the way, Nate is about to spread a little bit of chaos in our lobby talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? Before you can make the lobby. Alright, so I just wanted to talk about going in to see a movie for this one. And we live in a society where we have a whole bunch of different content that we can consume before and after the movie. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about what you guys do in preparation to see a movie. Uh, do you watch the trailers do you watch all the trailers do you watch the movie clips do you look at posters do you read reviews do you watch reviews before the movie how much do you know going in before you get down into the theater um for me i typically i almost always watch at least a trailer it's pretty rare that i go into a movie without watching a trailer and for me i like to know um the synopsis or the plot sum not the synopsis but the plot summary at least because there have been times where I go into a movie thinking I know what it's about, and if it takes a complete 180 on me and I'm not expecting it, I can find the ride and the viewing experience a little a little jarring, and it'll take me a second viewing to get comfortable with it. So I like to at least watch a trailer and know what the movie's about going in, 
but I'm at, I mean, this, this is a given, but I'm absolutely spoilers free. And I, there are even times we'll go into a point where like, I don't even want to know if certain people in, enjoyed a movie like Star Wars Force Awakens. When that came out, people who were seeing it before me, I didn't even want to know if they liked it or not. Like there are, there are certain precautions really depending on the movie that I will or won't take. See, for me, I have a routine. Um, and I'm, I've become a lot more meticulous about this over the last year or so. I will watch trailers. I kind of regret it sometimes because even if trailers aren't showing overt spoilers, this is something we actually talked about with Suburbicon a couple weeks ago. There are scenes that are in the trailer that happen late in the movie that might be in a different context that they were in the trailer, but they inadvertently become spoilers. Mm -hmm. So I'm starting to get a little bit more careful with watching trailers, but they're like, it's unavoidable. At, I, at some point, I think. I totally agree. I'm trying not to watch trailers too many times. Right. So I will watch trailers. I will not watch clips. I don't allow myself to watch clips unless I'm really excited for a movie, in which case a lot of the times I cave. Uh, as, far as, <laughs> as far as reviews go, I read consensuses. I will – so like on Chris Stuckman or Jeremy John's video, I will go to the end and see what they graded it. But I don't want to know specifics till I go in, what they liked and disliked. Same thing with Rotten Tomatoes. I'll read the little blurb um, that the critics have, but I won't actually read the reviews until after I've seen the movie. After I've seen the movie, the first thing I do is watch the trailer again. I watch it again to see hmm. huh. how it matches up with the feature product. And then I go through the reviews. Interesting. That is interesting. Um, I do a little bit of that. I'll do – I do Metascore a lot as well. I'll do – the brief, like, like summary blurb paragraph on Metascore Rotten Tomatoes, but hardly ever will I read a full review before seeing a movie because I do not want to know a whole lot. Other than what the movie's about, obviously, I don't want to know much going in. Yeah. So for me, uh, I'll definitely watch trailers for movies that I'm pumped to see, uh, especially big blockbusters. I'll probably watch all the main trailers that come through. But I think my tradition was uh, with Avengers Age of Ultron where I made sure I never watched full clips because for whatever reason for that movie, they decided to release the full Hulk versus Iron Man fight as a full clip that you could watch before the movie was in theaters. And I remember starting it and then saying, wait, no, Nate, you're going to spoil this moment for yourself. So I exited out of that and made sure that I didn't, didn't watch even a full 10 seconds of the whole thing. That's an, that is incredible self-restraint. Oh my God. It was, it was it was my biggest like red pill moment where I needed to say, wait, Nate, you're going to see a big blockbuster. Don't spoil the experience. I'm right. totally with you. Cause I remember Andrew, I'm 95% certain you did watch the Hulkbuster fight beforehand, right? Yeah, I did. Cause I remember I you talking to me sure about it. Yeah. Cause I remember you talking to me about it and you were like, you're like, Oh, I just watched it. Did you? And I was like, no, I don't want to spoil that. I'm going to wait. Yeah. No way. <laughs> to be fair. It's, it's, it was only a snippet of the fight. Like it wasn't the entire okay. fight. But still, so, I'm like no yeah, shot. Yeah, a lot more than a lot more than I should have seen at that point in the yeah. movie. It just becomes really hard. It becomes really hard with you have a certain amount of weeks left to go to a movie and it's one you're really looking forward to. The natural inclination is to see as much as possible. It's like getting to open a Christmas present early. Right, exactly. That's a great <laughs> way to put it. But you have to hold off because you know it'll be more satisfying when you see it on the big screen. And it won't yeah. be as neutered. Sometimes they edit those clips, so you'll be expecting something to happen one way, but in the actual movie, it ends up a different way. Mm-hmm. For sure. I was going to say, my my big thing for not avoiding it completely is I don't like going into a movie thinking I know what it's about and then being totally, like, like sideswiped by the whole thing. Like, totally 
totally like uncalled or unexpecting what happens. Like I like to have an idea, you know, like, do you guys feel that way at all? Or do you like that? Uh, depends. Like, like, like depends going on the in, not knowing anything. Yeah. It depends on the type. If of it's movie, an action good... movie. Yeah. I got no problems with that. But if I know if it's going to be a mystery or a thriller, I want as little details as possible. I don't want to give away the surprise of those kinds of plots. Right. 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 That's true. Yeah. It really depends on the, the type of film and the, and the profile of the film. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. What yeah, what what Nate was saying is kind of hitting the nail on the head. What I'm trying to say, what kind of movie it is, who's making it? Because a lot of the times, like if it's a movie that Steven Spielberg is making, I'm there no matter what. So I don't need to know every like I don't even really need to know a premise. I know he's going to put me in the seat. But that's also a me thing where I see pretty much everything. So I, uh, Jake, I completely get your your way of looking at it because I feel like that's a lot of the way that people look at movies. Yeah. Yeah, actually, this is, I can talk about this. A uh, good, uh, good experience I just had. So for those who don't know the movie um, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I just saw that over the weekend. Uh, we're not reviewing it, so I'm going to talk about it very, 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 very briefly. Um, overall, I liked it. It was good. It's one of those weird kind of out-there movies. doesn't come to a lot of theaters. doesn't get a lot of showings. Um, you know, weirdly made, not for major audiences. But um, every so often, I like some of those movies. Um, so I went to go see it. I enjoyed it. But the an older fellow next to me went to see it solely for the fact that it stars Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman, and the premise sounded okay. And man, was the not only was he lost, he hated it. And I was like, this this poor guy. And those are some of the reasons that I want to have at least an inkling of what the movie's about. I don't want to go in blind. Like that yeah. poor poor man wasted two hours of his life because he yeah. hated it, had no idea what it was. This this gets me back to. Uh, reading and watching reviews about a movie before it goes in. And I've gotten a lot of flack from some of my friends who say, why are you watching a review for a movie that you haven't seen yet? And even if they're spoiler-free reviews, I never watch spoiler reviews before a movie. Never. But sometimes some I sometimes will watch a movie that I'm on the fence of. Um, sorry, I will watch a review for a movie that I'm on the fence of. So that way I kind of get a better sense of what I'm going in to see. The people that say that are clearly people that don't usually read reviews because 99.999% of movie critics don't spoil details. They give you a general sense of is the movie good, is the movie bad. And those are the, that's the purpose of a review. It's not to recap the movie. So I understand that there's a little bit of hesitance about reading critic reviews or watching critic reviews before you go to see a movie, but that's based on a notion that the critic is going to spoil important details, which most of the time they are not trying to do. To play devil's advocate here, is there a reason to not do that to avoid bias going into a movie? If one of the movie critics you watch or read hates a movie, are you not going to be tempted to hate that movie going in to see it? No, yeah, no, I agree with that point. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm more speaking to the point of, oh, you're going to be spoiled by... Um, watching that review ahead of time but yeah yeah there's definitely some merit to that uh nate if i really agree with what chris stuckman says uh, like 90 percent of the time if he dislikes something it might influence how i walk in whether it's right or not it it is again it's a natural thing you so yeah that's the main reason why i now i wait until after Mm -hmm. to get the full breakdown yeah that's why i was saying um a little bit with certain certain movies not all but certain movies I try to avoid knowing if people even liked it or not. Like, Because like Andrew said, if there's a real critic I really, really 
like, and there's a movie I'm looking forward to, and he gives it like a 40 out of 100 on Metascore. I'm really going to go in thinking, oh man, I might, this might not be any good, or, you know, totally distort, you know, distort what I'm thinking. So I'll look for generalities, but I try not to look at too much. For me, it's definitely harder to suspend myself in the neutral movie going experience, because if a critic I know nitpicks a movie, says he hates it, then I'm going to be in nitpick mode while I'm watching the movie. And that's not where I should be on a first view. Right. Um, so it's definitely something that I feel like I'm almost like guilty of over the past couple of years, watching reviews before I see the movie. Um, and I'm trying to get a little bit better at avoiding that now. But just with so much content out there, it's hard not to, not to watch stuff that, for what I'm excited for. There's one more corner of this that I want to explore before we move on. Um, and you've been mentioning specifically trailers and clips and stuff like that. But what, where do interviews fit into this? Where and where do listening to the score of a movie fit into this beforehand? I don't really do that beforehand. Typically, you don't do interviews or score. Not one. really. I just not. I mean, like, if I, I don't really look for score um, uh, much at all, unless I really loved it. Then I'll go back and listen to it. But I don't. I don't go for a score beforehand. And interviews, it just depends if I'm interested in the person or not. Yeah, usually the score is something that connected to me to the movie, and now I have an emotional investment to the music because of the movie. So I usually don't get that kind of sense before going in. I think the only exception to that was the Superman score when Man of Steel came out, because I was hyped for that movie, and it was a letdown when the movie was just okay. That, that trailer um, had great score. But I remember the score really stuck out to me there. But I think that's the only exception of something that I've actively sought out the music for before getting into the theater. Right. Okay. And I think that's a way that I'm different than the two of you because I I'm I think I'm more in tune to like press junkets and the interviews and stuff like that. And when soundtracks are released, um, that's just the more natural movie uh, movie news junkie in me mm -hmm. that I think I have a little bit more than you guys. Um, but yeah, that's a that's another point where I have to be worried. I have to be worried a little bit sometimes when you're watching an interview and you're afraid that they might give something away. Um, that's something I have to get better with as well. It's just mm -hmm. a little small corner of this that I wanted to ask you guys about before we moved on. So I think we we kind of exhausted this topic really well. We want to hear what you guys think. Do you watch trailers before you go to the movies? Comment below. Email us at the middle seats show at gmail.com. Let us know. Anyway. That'll do it for Lobby Talk this week, and we are going to move into our news segment. And this just in, a news break special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. So guys, the big news this week, um, when Colin Trevorrow was taken off of Star Wars Episode Nine, a lot of us expected, based on the confidence that Disney seems to have in Star Wars The Last Jedi, directed by Ryan Johnson, coming up almost, almost 30 days away. Isn't that crazy? Um, but a lot of people expected us to hear that he would be stepping in Trevorrow's place. They went with J.J. Abrams instead, who, of course, directed The Force Awakens very capably, but a lot of us were thinking, okay, why, why did they not contact Ryan Johnson about this? Did he want to do original stuff? Is The Last Jedi bad? Well, I think we got our answer this week when Bob Iger, one of the big wigs at Disney, he announced in a conference call with investors and press that not only is Ryan Johnson returning to Star Wars after The Last Jedi, he has been given the reins to be the creative head of a new Star Wars trilogy. Now, what does this mean? What do we know about this? 
We know Johnson will write and direct the first film and it will at least produce the other two and that this story will expand the Star Wars universe. We're not expecting any Skywalkers. We're not expecting any Solos. It's looking to take us to those different corners of the galaxy far, far away. So, I mean, there are boundless, boundless possibilities. So I'm going to ask you guys two questions. We'll start with Nate. What do you think of this pairing? And is there a kind of story that you're interested in that this trilogy could take us to? So before I start, just confirming that we're finishing up this new reboot trilogy uh, first, right? They haven't said anything about scheduling, but I think that's a good assumption. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. Star Wars is obviously one of the most bankable properties Disney has ever gotten its hands on. And uh, I think we can all agree that we're excited for this trilogy to finish up and hopefully bring us great new characters like it did in Force Awakens and develop this world a little bit more. Uh, I'm curious as to what you said about this not relating to any past characters, which I think is a good step for the franchise as a whole. We don't want to see more rehashes or callbacks to the Skywalker franchise. Um, but I feel like you can't get too far away from it. If they decide, all right, there's going to be no Jedi and no Sith in this new trilogy, then you just kind of have a space adventure. It's no different than a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. You need to keep the key aspects of Star Wars there to keep it a Star Wars movie. Definitely make new stuff. I'm really excited for new ideas. Uh, but if this movie doesn't have lightsabers in it, <laughs> I might be a, I might be a little depressed, you know? Interesting. Okay. Same question. For, uh, for me, well, let's – I don't want to assume, but let's assume The Last Jedi is pretty damn good. Great. I'd love to hear more from Ryan Johnson. Fantastic. Um, but as far as where he goes with it, Star Wars universe is enormous. They've said George Lucas has like dozens on dozens on dozens of stories that we've never even heard from. So that that kind of makes me feel okay. And there are things we could we could go – Back before the Skywalkers were even in the picture, you know, let's, you know, Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah, all the way back there mm -hmm. when that's when, a big fan. When one Yoda right there. and and Mace Windu were just pupils, like go, we can go all the way back there. We can. There's all kinds of stuff Star Wars can do. I'm not worried about the material that much. It obviously, depends on the direction they go in, but there's so much Star Wars material, and Disney's so picky on how they do it. I'm if Johnson's a good choice, which it seems like he is. This sounds like you know. Loads of positives to me. Right. I think this is a, I think this is an enormous, enormous step for the franchise if they can pull this off. Because as much as I love the main canon, yeah, Jake, you nailed it. This is an enormous universe. There is so much you can do here. You can do a bunch of weird stuff. And Nate, I don't disagree with you that they it would be tough to get audiences to come in if you don't have some kind of Jedi and some kind of Sith involved. However... I do think that if any franchise could get away from its core principles and try something completely different, it's Star Wars. Because it has bought itself the goodwill of the public that they will be able to go with them to these different corners of the universe. So if we want to spend an entire movie on Dagobah, uh, not even necessarily with Yoda, just looking at the other creatures that live there, or if we want to spend it in this corner of the universe, we're just... This regular Joe is living his life, and he's surrounded by this very interesting alien world. That could work, too. I think if, with the right idea, this could be 
the second renaissance of the Star Wars trilogy, uh, I shouldn't say Star Wars trilogy, of the Star Wars franchise. I, I'm really excited about what the prospects of this could hold, especially since we've seen how good Ryan Johnson is at original sci-fi with Looper. He was That's an excellent, excellent science fiction movie. Um, and he has the ability to build a mythology. So yeah, I think I'm I'm very, very excited for this idea. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm very excited as well to hear that the franchise is brave enough to not make this another nostalgia trip. Like, say what you will about The Force Awakens, but there's a lot of fan service in there. The whole prequels were way too guilty of giving us fan service instead right. of actual good characters and stories. So moving on from that is a great step. Uh, I just hope they don't go too far. And I hope that they keep what makes Star Wars Star Wars fun. Um, but it's okay to let go of the old characters. I'm more than fine to do that. Right. Yeah, I think that's what hopefully the plan is moving forward. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on to our next story. Uh, the the thing that's been going on in Hollywood, the thing that's dominating the headlines, the sexual assault allegations, uh, more and more people falling underneath the thumb of these women that are speaking out and coming out against And men. And men, excuse me. Yep, absolutely. Because that is especially applicable to who we're talking about right now, probably the biggest star to fall under all of the sexual assault allegations, which is Kevin Spacey. Um, Now, Kevin Spacey had a movie coming out called All the Money in the World. It's directed by Ridley Scott. It's being distributed by Sony, also stars Mark Wahlberg, Michelle Williams. And pre all of these allegations, a lot of people felt that he was a potential Oscar contender. Well, in a move that is potentially unprecedented throughout Hollywood, Ridley Scott and Sony have decided to recast Kevin Spacey in the role of J. Paul Getty in All the Money in the World, with just six weeks to go before the movie is set to come out on December 22nd. Uh, We've seen trailers of the movie. We've seen stills with Spacey in it. But now it will be Christopher Plummer, who is a great actor in his own right, playing the role. They have, like we said, they have six weeks to reshoot his 10 days worth of shooting. Uh, the reshoots are expected to cost, according to Variety, north of $2 million. However, it's a matter of whether risking the financial loss from Kevin Spacey being in the film versus taking the financial hit from replacing him is greater. So guys, this is something we've never seen before. Uh, Obviously, there's no precedent for this. Jake, what's your immediate reaction to recasting him? (laughs) This is wild, and I I have a couple thoughts on this, but the first reaction is, that's wild. Um... So it wasn't, it was immensely, immensely small. A couple weeks ago, I worked on a, as a PA in a small, small film independent movie. And the final week of, of shooting, everybody was stressed. It was just a regular, normal production. The production wasn't, I heard, it, I heard it was only my first gig, but it was not well handled from what I gathered. And everybody was stressed. I can't even imagine the amount of stress that everybody on that production feeling right now. It's got to be madness. People must be hating everything in their lives right now. But so from a filming standpoint, this is crazy. Uh, but taking a backseat from what it must be like, um, I think there's a few things going on here. It's being released during reward season. So I think if, if they left Kevin Spacey in it in looking in hopes for money, they're going to lose all hopes at awards. I think the Academy is going to completely remove Kevin Spacey from their radar, at least for a little while. So I think if they're looking for any kind of award buzz, they had to get rid of Kevin Spacey. From a finance... So removing him, if the movie's still good, 
they have a shot at getting publicity from the academy. From a money standpoint, if the reshoots are only going to cost two million, it might not be a bad move altogether, actually, because two million in the grand scheme of things in the movie world isn't really that much, right? De- depends on the budget, but yeah, in yeah, the grand I mean, scheme of things, yeah, like a Ridley Scott directed movie, two million for reshoots, it's not doesn't sound that bad. It's probably just stressful as all hell, right? Nate, yeah, that that's definitely what I can gather from the situation. I've had a couple of late nights making making productions happen whether i'm filming or especially editing and i will tell you i would not want to be an editor on this movie oh right god, now god no that is that is nuts just to have a done movie with six weeks to go and then say oh by the way let's take out this entire character and throw him in there's a lot of work that needs to go in it's not as easy as just dragging and dropping somebody else's face on kevin spacey's slides like there's all the color correction and all all that jazz, in addition to getting the cast together to film all these scenes, because you got to bring in all the supporting actors that had to deal with Spacey's character, too. Yeah, including Mark Wahlberg, who yeah, I'm sure is not cheap. Yeah, a busy guy. Who's a yeah. busy yeah. guy? Um, so This is a maddening task. Yeah, I, I am very, very, very happy that I'm not one of these editors right now. I wish them all the best of luck. <laughs> um, and I guess this... This movie literally is the epitome of the show must go on. They want to release this movie. They don't want to cancel the movie altogether like they did with Louis C.K.'s movie. Right. Um, And I guess they really are passionate about their project because they want to be able to submit this to awards and they don't want to have Kevin Spacey's name tainting the project. So good on them for trying. I would have loved to, (laughs) if I was in the production, I would have loved to have like an extra month to put it all together instead of rushing for this deadline but yeah somebody's not gonna be sleeping for a while right yeah this movie better be amazing because if this movie comes out and it's like 55 percent at rotten tomatoes this this is gonna feel so anticlimactic there are gonna be some producers and post-production people putting their fists through not not just holes like like streets (laughs) like people are gonna be furious oh my god right um moral principle wise I, i applaud ridley scott for yeah, having the audacity move. to do this because it's it, yo know, it yeah. is that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know the what the boldest to call it. of bold moves. Yeah, cuz I don't yeah. for people who just like people who don't understand not not that we're experts ourselves, but for people who don't understand how production works, this is lunacy. This is a crazy crazy move and in the grand scheme of things it might work <laughs> out for them and I I applaud them for for going through with it, but wow is this insane. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of timing, it's not like waiting the last week to do an assignment. This is like waking up the day that a paper's due and doing it then. It is going to be that close Forgetting about it. Realizing (laughs) your paper's due at 5 and it's (laughs) 3.30. And Nate, Nate, you brought up a great point. This movie is very starkly visual. You can just tell from the trailers. So, yeah, there is probably a long color correction process that goes through with this film. Because the visuals here are, you know, they're very stylistic looking. So on t- yep. this is not just pickup shots. This is recreating that entire atmosphere of the scenes that Kevin Spacey were in. And luckily for them, he was apparently only did 10 days of shooting. But yeah. 
They had months to turn nothing. that around. Yeah. Yeah. It it can take it can take three hours to set up a ten second scene with some of these things. Like they are gonna be working their butts off. Yeah, I think it's safe to say we're all fascinated to see what happens with this. Yeah, you know what I was just thinking? You know, Walking Dead does Talking Dead. I want to see something right. like that for this reshoots. I want to know oh what's going on. I would right love to now. see a documentary on this. Yeah, I would. I would absolutely love to see how how they go about this. This would be like. borderline, probably a more interesting documentary than the actual movie's going to be. And I'm saying <laughs> I would that, love to see it. I'm saying that, hoping that the movie's good. Right. <laughs> anyway, moving on, something a little bit more upbeat and less. I oh, I guess it depends who you ask. Less crazy. Um, Amazon is in talks with Warner Brothers Television and the J.R.L. Tolkien Estate to develop a live-action Lord of the Rings series for their streaming service. Now, what this means, we don't know yet. Would it be a retelling of the Hobbit films and the Lord of the Rings films, but on a streaming service? Would it be an adaptation of The Cimmerillion, which is a collection of Middle-earth-based works that were published after J.R.L. Tolkien died? Um, We don't know. There's no confirmation either way yet. However... This is a pretty major property to have on a streaming service like Amazon. Um, I'll give you the two hypotheticals. Hypothetically speaking, they're they're remaking the original trilogy, directed brilliantly by Peter Jackson from 2001 to 2003. Also, in the other hypothetical, they're not even touching that. So, which one are you more excited for, if either? And do you think that a streaming service like Amazon has the budget to put together a project like this? Um, I think that, at least for me personally, and I hope you guys agree, that I'd love to see original stories versus retellings of stories we've seen before. In the case of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the original trilogy, you can't get much better than perfect. And those movies are pretty damn close to perfect. Uh, especially especially the first one and the last one. I really, really enjoy. Uh, those are easy royal thrones for me. So I hope they don't touch those, and I kind of hope that they don't touch the Hobbit stuff either. Um, those movies weren't fantastic, but they they were serviceable enough to tell the story that I don't think they need to waste their time on that. I would much rather see stuff that we have not seen in a live-action setting before. And Amazon is doing very, very well financially. I can't speak too much about their movie department, um, but they have done some good films of the past. Manchester by the Sea sticks out for me. So I would love to see their creative team do something really, really cool with a franchise that hasn't seen the light of day for 15 years. It's something that I'm not opposed to them bringing out. For me, whoever gets it, I say one, shoot for like a 2020 release date. Wait until Game of Thrones simmers a little. Because, I mean, the Hmm. the Game of Thrones universe is going to be similar to Lord of the Rings and, and vice versa. It's just inevitable. They have the same feel. It's just how how it's kind of working. Not exactly the same, but similar. Um, so one, wait until Game of Thrones simmers down. And then people are going to be waiting for this because Game of Thrones will be missed. It's, it's the biggest show on TV right now. So Game of Thrones will absolutely be missed. And once that's gone, if the Lord of the Rings show takes off and is any good, it's going to be huge. That's a really good point. Yeah, there will be a giant hole in the fantasy industry once. Yeah. So I, I say whoever whoever takes it, take your time putting it together and make sure it's good. Because if it's good, it's going to be enormous. Um, and as far as that goes, I say I say don't don't hold back. Focus on everything. I mean, P, like you know, I agree with Nate. Lord of the Rings trilogy is like nine nine and a half for the first two, and then like 
probably 10 out of 10 for the third movie. Like, it's a phenomenal trilogy. One of the greatest trilogies of all time. But do the whole thing. If you can afford it and it's, if, it's, if, it, if it's any good, don't, you know, you don't have to cut anything. You have, if you have the time and the money to do it, do it like Game of Thrones is doing. I mean, it's obvi- it obviously worked for them. Unless I'm missing something, guys. So you're advocating that they remake the original trilogy? Not not like that, but if they can if they can put together ten seasons, why not? See what see what they can do with it. No- uh, they I mean yes, if if they get a talented person involved, right? Then I mean obviously it's going to be hard not to get excited about it. However, I would be significantly more excited if they were making shows in the Lord of the Rings universe that were not specifically about Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I would I would push for what for what Nate was saying earlier. Cover the stuff we haven't seen, but I mean. If you can do both well, I don't see a problem with incorporating both. Definitely go for the stuff we haven't, but don't shun the stuff we have seen either. It's great stuff. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the Silmarillion story there, Drew, but I would love to see uh, like an origins thing for Sauron's rise to power. I think that's what a lot of the Silmarillion is. Okay. I could be completely wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure (laughs) that's what it is. All right. I'm sure some fan in the comments will help clear things up for us here but um yeah i would love to see the lore of lord of the rings explored a little bit for the stuff that we haven't seen before i think Mm -hmm. that's the best direction to go it's just i i can't wrap it's the same thing we talked about with the lion king last week i can't wrap myself around an amazon adaptation being better than these big giant blockbusters yeah these masterpieces Mm -hmm. um which yeah i agree like obviously those of you who know me lord of the rings return of the king is my favorite movie of all time um, I don't think a movie ever grabs me like that movie did when I first saw it and every time that I watch it. Um, so obviously I'm biased. I don't want them to touch what I what I consider perfection. However, that might not be the reality of what's going to happen here. So if they're going to do it, they better damn do a good job. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, that's – I think uh, that's – How the, the hell are they going to cast the wizards, man? Right. How you do you don't... cast someone better than Andy Serkis as Gollum? How do you cast someone better as Ian McKellen? Because he's not going to come back. No, he she shouldn't. I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> I I would assume that they're smart enough to avoid that trilogy. I don't know how they'll feel about the Hobbit stuff. And eh, they can they can do whatever they want with the Hobbit. I don't care. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, I'd much rather see old school elves fighting Sauron's old army, uh, prequel style with as little throwbacks to the original trilogy as they can. Right. Like, keep the lore, keep us excited and invested, um, but focus on the new stuff. That's that's what I really, really right. want to see. And Lord of the Rings video games have actually been doing a really good job of that recently. So just use them as a template. Yeah, uh, honestly. Good idea. I, there's, there's, there are other options you can go to without telling the story of, of Frodo and Sam and yeah. Gandalf again. I want to see a, a TV series with Orc as the main character. <laughs> Orcs lives matter. Um, That's basically what that new David Ayer movie is. Brian. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> um, no, I, I I agree with you guys. Don't get me wrong. I would love. I would rather them cover the new material. But I'm just saying, if they if they can cover it all well, don't don't avoid the original material stuff just because it's been done already. Like if if it fits into the story, then. You know, I'm I'm fine with it as long as you're doing it well. Like, don't ruin it. I think we're for right now. We're in wait and see mode. Yeah, because we have to yes. we have to learn more about what they're going to do and who they're going to hire for it. Yeah. So I think we would call all of us skeptically 
skeptically excited. Yeah. I think is re- that fair? Reoccurring theme on the show, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Al- always the skeptics yeah. here on the Middle Seats podcast. Anyway, that'll do it for news here today, and we're going to move into our feature review of Murder on the Orient Express. I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. Well, he was in perfectly good health. He he had his enemies. God, murder here. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me. The murderer is with us. And every one of you is a suspect. And who are you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I'm probably the greatest detective in the world. That was a snippet of the trailer of Murder on the Orient Express. It is the fourth feature-length adaptation of the 1934 classic, classic guys, Agatha Christie novel, and the second to make it to theater following Sidney LeMay's 1974 original movie. It's directed by Kenneth Branagh, who's best known for his Shakespeare adaptations like Henry V and Hamlet. He was nominated for Oscars for his work in both of those. To the mainstream public, he's better known as the director of the original Thor film and the recent live-action Cinderella remake. He stars in the film as well as Hercule Poirot, possibly the greatest detective in the world, a brilliant and eccentric 1930s French detective. That wasn't bad. Not too bad, right? (laughs) It was okay. He's got a hell of a mustache. He's aboard a train headed to London. But there's a big cast of characters on this train, including, but not limited to, an aging princess played by Judy Dench, a Spanish missionary played by Penelope Cruz, a British governess played by The Force Awakens, Daisy Ridley, a German professor played by Willem Dafoe, an American gangster played by Johnny Depp, his assistant played by Josh Gad, a rambunctious widow played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and a doctor played by Leslie Odom Jr. from Broadway's Hamilton. When one of them dies and the train is temporarily trapped under snow, Everyone's a suspect, everyone's in danger, and Perot has a limited amount of time to solve it. So guys, for personally speaking, and I, I'm going to probably speak for all three of us, I'm thinking, we know of the reputation of Murder on the Orient Express, but we probably didn't know a lot of the details going in. I I had no idea that this movie had been made four times prior. I, had, I yes. knew nothing like, about it at all. Really? Nothing. Okay, so clearly none of us were literary majors. <laughs> <laughs> clearly. Um, but... Basing it on the merits of itself, a movie out in theaters right now, shot in 65mm, starring a huge, huge cast. Yeah. Jake Hensler, what did you think of Murder on the Orient Express? Oh, I didn't want to go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't want to go first on this one. I was – I'm, I'm a little torn. Like, in the, I can recognize that it's like – it's made nice, but to be frank, I didn't give a shit. Like, this movie did not have my attention for, like, a lot of it, to be honest. I don't know. It just didn't... I was not engaged in the the mystery a whole lot. I think Kenneth Kenneth Branagh was uh, was good as the, the title character. Um, Which character was he playing, Jake? Murder or Express? Yeah, right, that's, that's what I meant. Um, the, the lead character. <laughs> I thought he was good. He gave a good performance. And I think, generally, the acting was all fine. But I didn't... I didn't really care for it a whole lot. I... I don't know. I was not engaged very much. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Nate, what'd you think? I'm actually kind of surprised that Jake thought that because I thought I was going to be the odd man out on this one. I wasn't a huge fan of this movie either. Um, It wasn't particularly exciting until maybe 
40 minutes into it. And even then, I was not really emotionally invested to anything that was going on. Exactly. I thought all the actors and actresses in this did a great job. But other than that, I don't really have too much praise for this movie. I just have a long list of criticisms. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to be the voice of dissension, I guess. This is a good movie, guys. I think it's a good movie. It's it's not a great movie. It's certainly not the masterpiece that it could have been. Um, but if you look at it as like an entertaining adaptation of an old, older book, um, a crisp, beautiful-looking movie with actors, very big, talented actors doing basically off-Broadway, kind of a confined place kind of film. Um, I enjoyed it, looking at it that way. Um, it's a really crisp-looking movie. It really uses the train space well. I think Kenneth Branagh is the star of the film, both in front and behind the camera. Uh, I think he's really good as the main character, who is easily the most engaging character in the film. The other, all Everybody else is a little bit... Everybody else is a little bit underdeveloped. That I agree with you. Him, you clearly know his morals. You clearly know what he's doing. Definitely. Um, and he is just an eccentric, likable personality. Um, and I really think he does a good job directing the scenes and milking some tension from a story that a lot of people are going to go in and know the ending to before you even head in there. Um, it's a bit pedestrian. I will give you that. It's not an amazing movie. It's a solid, like... You turn it on on HBO and you enjoy it on a Saturday afternoon, or you go see it at a matinee. Um, HBO's better than an FX, I guess. I, if I think <laughs> if you go in with the managed expectations, it's going to be enjoyable. Um, see, what one word you said in there uh, in the beginning was entertaining, and I don't exactly agree with you. I think the opening scene was interesting because we're we're engaged and compelled by. Kenneth Branagh's character, the the main detective, or the detective, uh, in the opening scene, I'm like, okay, this guy's got quirks, he's got personality, he's interesting, he's obviously smart, I like him. After that first case in the very beginning is solved, I'm not a, I'm not all that interested for a lot of it, and then it's just roller coaster of interested and not interested. That's really interesting you say that because I am the exact opposite of that. I thought that first scene was so tonally different from the rest of the movie. It was. It was like yeah. it was like we walked into a slapstick comedy out of nowhere, and then we were supposed to settle in for like a tight atmospheric thriller, almost, or like closer to a drama. I wouldn't say atmospheric thriller because that makes me think of David Fincher. But yeah, I was not a fan of that opening scene. It gets off to a slow start in general for me. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't fit, but I think they introduced the character pretty well because like because all of a sudden he's he's very like everything's even he's got this ADD thing going on he's obviously very smart he's got everything figured out and i'm like okay this guy's really interesting i can follow this guy and then once we get onto the train i'm like i don't nothing's all that interesting for me mm-hmm. yeah um, i think my biggest issue with the the movie is something they got to wait till spoiler section i think for, i'm with you but um but i do need to um, addressed that something you said in your first piece there, Drew, and you thought the the movie was visually appealing, and I could not disagree more. Uh-huh. This is the first. This is the first note on my list where I was bored by all the shots in this movie. Wow! I thought the shots were incredibly uninspired. Did we see the same thing? I'll I'll be I, happy meeting. I don't know. I really don't know. There there were two standout shots. The first one where. Um, the murder happens, and we don't get to see the body. There's this really cool um, shot where the 
where we're looking above the characters and we actually don't get to see the body. That was like, that was my little, little note. Like, oh, that's a cool camera shot. But everything else, it's just close-ups of faces. And sometimes it's extended close-ups of faces. So there's a conversation between two people, but we only see the person he's interviewing and we never go back to the detective's reactions to what they're saying. So they're not dynamic to watch. There are long uh, explanation scenes where they could have easily put a new shot where they're talking about a different character, but instead we're just watching this detective list off names that we aren't well um, explained. There are so many characters in this movie. There's 12 murder suspects right off the bat, in addition to the staff on the train and people that are referenced in flashbacks. That's a lot of names to get in a two-hour movie, and it's really hard for the audience to pay attention to. And one way to get around that is to show us the characters' faces as much as possible. So you're like, okay, he's talking about Beard Guy in this scene because he's showing (laughs) Beard Guy. They don't do that in this movie. It's a lot of really static shots, and it really kept me from enjoying the movie because it's not dynamic or fun to watch at all. I completely disagree, 100%. Because, first of all, you're not addressing all of the scenes that take place outside in the snow with the beautiful contrast and the beautiful overlooking cinematography there. So you're not addressing that. See, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a middleman. I think he he uses the inside of the train semi decent, but everything else is hardcore green screen. It's so fake. But it's not. I don't think it is. It looks so Ooh, fake. No, I'm I'm definitely more in Jake's it looks, view there. I think the, anytime the, they show why the train would he movie, shoot the movie? Why would he shoot the movie in 65 millimeter and then just shoot it on a green screen? Anytime the train is pulling into some somewhere, like or like we're watching the train leave or or showing a mountainscape, I'm like, holy green screen. It reminded me of the Polar Express. No, it I, doesn't look it looks real. So fake. I I don't agree with that at all. I think all the backdrops look very fake outside the train. Very. But okay, but if we're, okay, <laughs> we'll go inside the train now because clearly we're not going to agree on that. Yeah, and there are there are the cinematography inside the train is really interesting. I think, especially oh. the first time he announces the murder, that one shot where it goes down the aisle and it shows everyone's reaction. The same that's shot that cool was shot. in the trailer. Yeah, that's a cool shot. But yeah. we only got like uh, maybe five cool shots. There are a lot more than five shots in a movie, Trey. There, there are some good in- interior shots. I will give you that, but... The overhead shot where they're going from cubicle to cubicle? There's a lot of shots in here. Or how about the shot from outside where you follow the, them through the windows? Yeah, I hated that shot. Did you? <laughs> I loved it. I, I thought it was great. When he was walking, first getting on the train? Yeah. Where the window panes are blocking all the characters every step they take? It's showing you the length. It's establishing the space. It's showing you the length of the train. I hated that shot. All right. Well, we let's let's talk more about this about this later. Let's let's move on on a little bit from the the shot by shot because we can talk about shot by shot what we did and didn't like all night. But as far as as far as um, clutter and characters, I agree with Nate a little bit. It became a little like from the character standpoint. There, I couldn't remember most people's names or why they were suspects. It almost felt like a a muddled game of Clue that I just became disinterested with for a little while i don't disagree with that that's that's that is true um there are way there are a lot of characters and it's the movie doesn't do a great job it almost balances them all well but it can't quite yeah like especially the there are two characters like the count and the countess who are played by two actors that i'm not sure who they are but they feel like afterthoughts in this whole thing because they're not one of the big famous names like that's that's the problem it's yeah there there's so many characters in the movie there's this one scene where he's 
they cut between him interviewing three different people at different times. And it's almost like a montage sequence, like something you'd see out of Rocky. But instead of training, <laughs> he's interviewing people. And you're like, okay, I know none of these three characters are going to be the murderer now because they're treating them just like uh, just like little montages. I was surprised how many people they actually looked into because I was like, this is getting a little borderline stale. Like, let's like let's go somewhere. Let's do something. Like, write, write people off to keep the audience interested. Focus on people and why they could be. Well, here's the thing. You're saying write people off? Like, it's an adaptation of a classic, classic story. So we need to be able to separate what we don't like about the classic story, which, I mean, you can totally have problems with murder the original Murder on the Orient Express, which I have been assured is a – this is a pretty faithful adaptation to it. You can have problems with the source material. That's fine, but you have to also separate it versus the execution of the source material. <laughs> well, then can I talk about that for a little bit, Drew? Go ahead. So, again, I have not read the book. I haven't seen any of the other adaptations, so I can only judge Same. what I saw on the screen. When I go and see a thriller or a mystery movie, I have some sort of base expectations, and that is that if I am a dedicated viewer... I can try to put the mystery together myself. And the main character, the detective, is kind of a vessel for me to experience this puzzle. This movie, and just by the the way that it structures its plot, it is impossible for a viewer to solve the mystery on their own because this movie falls into the trap of introducing key aspects to the mystery in ways that we could not have picked up as a viewer, mostly through flashbacks and cutbacks to previous encounters that do not occur on the train. And that's my major problem with the movie. Yeah, and that's a problem that, honestly, I don't disagree with. Um, I do think it's a little bit more fun to put it together than you're letting on. Um, But yeah, a lot of the fun in mystery movies is putting it together and moving along with the detective at the same time. But this guy, Perot, is so smart that he's six steps ahead of us, so he's just telling us everything that's happening, pretty much. And that's that's a misstep. It is. Um, having said that, I still was having fun in between the pieces of exposition. I was hoping, I was prodding for uh, key information in his interrogation scenes. I like seeing these different actors play off of each other. And ultimately, if you're going to this movie, that's, I think, what your base expectations are. It depends. I guess it depends on what audience you are. Because Nate, clearly, you wanted to solve the mystery. When I feel like a lot of people are going to go in and just want to see these actors chew the scenery against each other. And it depends what you go in looking for. If you go in looking for that latter thing, then I think this movie delivers. If you go in looking for this big, stimulating mystery that you can put together the different puzzle pieces, you're not going to get that. And I think for mm-hmm. me, I went in more on the latter section, and I enjoyed it. So we're going to move on to our ratings here, and once we get into the rating section here, we grade films on the seat scale. So these are the uh, five ratings that we have, Royal Throne, Plush Recliner, Wooden Seat, Damp Lawn Chair, and Sleazy Outhouse. Nate, why don't you go first? Yep, so I'm going to give this one a damp lawn chair. And my reasoning essentially is that I just can't pull too many good things out of this movie. It's competently made. It's very well acted. I really enjoyed Josh Gad um, and Johnny Depp in supporting roles. I thought they did a good job. Um, William Defoe is all right, too. It's it's well acted, but it just doesn't give me anything as a viewer 
to enjoy the movie. The music's bland. The, my opinion, the shots are pretty bland. And most importantly, the mystery just is not fun to solve. This movie is more interested in pulling the rug out from under the audience than letting us try to solve the mystery. And I think that's the key flaw to Murder on the Orient Express. Damp lawn chair for me. I'm I'm kind of I'm actually surprised. Me and Nate are in a similar agreement. I was kind of torn. For me, I was like, if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling generous, wouldn't see, and that's how I felt at first. Because Nate's right, it's competently made for sure. But the more I think about it, I'm looking for things to enjoy, and I'm not. I'm coming up a little short, so I'm gonna have to lean damp lawn chair as well. You know, it's just like I didn't hate it. It was it was okay, but you know, when I'm thinking about positives. I, I'm coming up a little short, and I, I agree. The um, Kenneth Brown is very good. I like Depp and Gad. You know, all the acting, you know, top to bottom is all really good. But I'm just I'm I didn't find myself enjoying it. I wouldn't say it was boring or bad, but I you know wasn't a very enjoyable movie. I, and I have I have more to talk about in spoilers, so I'm looking forward to that in a couple minutes. But go ahead, Andrew. Um. So yes, it does. It looks nice. It's acted nice. Um. It, obviously, the, there's a disconnect here between the three of us, and that's fine. And that's yeah, it's gonna happen. So it makes for some of the most interesting conversations. Sure. Um, but I enjoy. I had fun. I had a good time with this movie, just based on the merits of the story, the merits of how it looks, the merits of how it's acted. Um, I'm gonna give this one a really first class wooden seat. Not quite a plusher kiner because the story is a little thin and the storytelling is a little underwhelming at points, like Nate kind of alluded to earlier. But I do think this is a good matinee mystery movie, uh, especially for the older demographics. And I do agree there. I can see a lot of people um, enjoy like going to this movie and enjoying it for what it is. I just personally didn't feel that way, but I could see people enjoying it. Yeah, it's a little underwhelming, but it's a good, not great movie for me personally. And with that, we're going to move into spoilers. If you have not seen Murder on the Orient Express or if you don't know the story of Murder on the Orient Express like we didn't going into it, uh, tune out now. If you have seen Murder on the Orient Express, or if you know the story of Murder on the Orient Express, join us here in our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! Alright, so let me get started here. And I think this movie kind of boils down to the big reveal. Um, that not just one killer, but everyone's a killer. And as a plot, that's that's okay. It's fun, it's interesting, um, it's something different that I wasn't expecting. Um, I was just kind of annoyed that I couldn't put that mystery together because so much of the case involved the the flashbacks to the child killer case with this other family. And that all happens off screen or in in flashback scenes and it's impossible for the viewer to figure that stuff up on their own because it's information never given to the viewer am i wrong in any of that statement guys no that's not my issue too but I'll, i'll go into that more go ahead so there's the plot device right there so right there it fails as a mystery movie so now i'm looking at this as a drama and the the final push that the film gives is that uh this detective hercule decides that these people are innocent and um, he's not going to report them because the case is just so um, emotionally different for him. And this is where the movie fails me a second time because 
from the beginning, this detective is featured as a rock-solid moral guy where justice needs to be served no matter what. And all of a sudden, he flips those morals at the very end of the movie because of this experience. And the character change is just so dramatic for me. There was no, like, creeping doubts throughout the movie where other characters are trying to say, is justice really black and white? There was never any of that gray discussion throughout the movie. So his change, that justice is not black and white, was never developed. And it came really shocking, really jarring for me at the end. So it failed for me as a mystery and then as a drama with those last two scenes. But aren't the characters inherently gray characters? These are He's so used to facing and putting away criminals that are black and white, evil. They are corrupt, corrupt people. These are people that he's in, he's tr- investigating each of them, and he's finding that there are good and bad things about all of them. Um, so wouldn't you think that the whole process of putting together this mystery is that character development for him? That's what I took from it personally. Uh, I, I just really don't see it because we don't get enough time with any of these characters. They got to divvy up the screen time between 12 suspects. Really, it amounts to maybe six people that we actually get some screen time with. And it just isn't enough for me. And quite honestly, <laughs> um, who was it? It was um, Leslie Oldham and Daisy Ridley. Ridley. They actively try to kill him, <laughs> and he's fine with it. It. Yeah, that's that so kind I, of stuff. I, I, have a, I have a couple issues, and I, I, Nate, I agree with you. Um, there are, it doesn't seem like there's enough plant and payoff. So I liked the change that his character goes through, but there's no, he doesn't, he doesn't get there in like a timely fashion per se. Like if there was a little, a little plant here, a little plant there, a little show here, a little show there, okay. But it doesn't happen. The entire, he, he specifically says he's a black and white guy, and then. He's like, if you're, if you're, if you want to stay innocent, you're gonna to have to kill me. And then he's like, guess what? I changed my mind. You guys are all right. Don't worry about it. Like, it just it happens out of nowhere. And I, the arc works. It makes sense. But we don't get there in like in orderly fashion. It doesn't, it doesn't work it's there. It's not properly developed. I don't think it comes out of nowhere. I think that final change comes from him when Michelle Pfeiffer makes the decision that she's going to kill herself. Like, I think that's the moment where he pivots and this becomes, he has that epiphany where he's kind of like, these people are so distraught that they're willing to die for this cause. So that was the moment for me that cemented and made that ending okay. I thought it actually worked really well. Uh, The ending is the actual twist. It's morbid and it's dark. It feels really poetically like justice though. The movie does pull that off. Yeah, but there's kind of what Nate was saying again. It doesn't. There's no alluding to the audience whatsoever because there's because they don't give us any of that. It's all flashback and they have there's no inkling that it would, could be all of them. But there's like you could not figure that out halfway through the movie unless you just decided to throw a guess out into the universe and happen to be right. Like there's nothing that leads you there. And for me, the third act, I actually think the third act's a little sloppy because all of a sudden when um, when the doctor tries uh, tries to kill him, I'm like, oh, so it was the doctor. And then all of a sudden, next scene happens and it's not him. And I'm like, wait, 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 what, what happened? And then something, I forget who it was, but all of a sudden, the the older guy, the older gentleman in the, with the white beard, who was like with Depp's character, he says something. I'm like, oh, so it was him. And then they move on. I'm like, oh, maybe not. And then Michelle Pfeiffer moves a wig. I'm like, oh, it was her. And then it's not. I'm like, what are we doing? 
Who was it? What is going on? What I don't like. What am I missing here? Can we please? That's the movie. That's the movie having I fun think that's with the sloppy. audience. I think and kind of throwing I all think these that's red herrings at you. <laughs> I don't. Okay, I don't. You can't throw yeah, in I think that's just five sloppy. red herrings in it's the a last mystery three movies. Of course you can. Without any red herrings at the at, at the beginning, my my opinion. Um, but we'll have to just agree to disagree on the structure of this kind of mystery movie. And again, if it's accurate to the source material, then I'm just not a huge fan of this story being adapted into a movie. It yeah, sounds sure like it'd it make for a great book because you have all the time to develop these characters a little bit more and have more time to develop the the past case with Johnny Depp's character as a child murderer. But we don't get that in this movie, and that's why, for me, it does not work as a movie. I also, from a, from a movie standpoint, I, I thought to myself, anybody they're spending a good amount of time on is not it. So Josh Gad, immediately I was like, nope, not him. They're spending time on him. Yeah, well, they're trying to they're trying to trick you with that, and I think less discerning audiences yeah. might not fall for that, though. Yeah, I, I, for me, I was like, I was like, it's somebody they're not, uh, wh- whoever it is, it's somebody they're not spending time on. So the the gentleman with the white beard who was tailoring to Depp's character, I was hung up on him from the get go because I'm like, they're not doing anything with him. They interviewed him third for a little bit of screen time, and then they kind of did away with him. And so for the entire movie, I'm like, there's, there's see, my money was on the doctor for a while. And and then and then yeah, like, yes. they pulled that out, and I was like, oh, I got it. And then that, and then then he yeah, when he pulls the gun on him, I'm like, oh, well, it's I kind of figured it was both of them. And then it's not. I kind of figured <laughs> they were both in on it. Um, and that's what the movie wants you to think when they have that shady conversation at the beginning on the boat. Um, that's what that's mm-hmm. what the implication is, I think at least. Um, but talking about how the characters are shown as these morally ambiguous people, um, I got that the most with Daisy Ridley's character. Um, with, with, she was great here. I did enjoy her. Yeah, she she's really she's just a really solid actress in general. Um, I think all the actors do a really good job. This is the best Johnny Depp's been in a while. Yeah, yeah, good for him. And Josh Gad too is showing. Josh his Gad roles. was su- surprisingly great here. I didn't expect that out of him. Yeah, flexing his serious. Yeah, he's got he's having it. a good pretty good year overall. He apparently between this and apparently he's very good in Marshall as well. And, and Beauty and the, the Beast, Beast too. Is really yeah, good in. I don't want to get hung up on it. Um, so I'm just going to say it the once and drop it, but Willem Dafoe's character makes no sense to me. All 12 of these characters are in on it, and he's effectively a triple agent by the end of the movie because he's pretending to be uh, a German scientist, um, who's actually a undercover agent, but he's actually a murderer. (laughs) Yeah, I was confused by his character. (laughs) And he's he's actively pointing at other people on the train um, especially the doctor's character is like a racist character. And if you were really all in on it, I, I would be just keeping my head down. And they do that to throw off the audience and not the detective. Right. And that's weird to me. It's a, it's, thea- really, it's, really a weird. it's part of the theatricality of the whole thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Because we're taking this realistically. None of yeah. these people would make a show out of themselves at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> um, they would have just killed him at another time. Just once, not have to set up this whole convoluted story to throw off a detective. Yeah. <laughs> Just have one person stab him, and that'd be it. Not fit all 12 people into there a There are room. two other things I want to bring up with the detective. Not not issues with him per se, but in the very beginning, they established that he's got this very particular ADD thing. Like, he's very into, you know, his breakfast of eggs being straight and people's ties being straight. And 
he steps in uh, in like camo poop, and then he has in his with his left foot, and then he has to step in it in his right foot to be equal. I that's interesting. That's an interesting character, and it's only in the like the very beginning and the very end. We do not see it for the majority of the middle of the mm-hmm. movie. So for me, that's like we're losing character character a little bit. But yeah, so that was one thing I was kind of looking forward to seeing more of in the movie, seeing this character's quirks and not not getting a lot of it. And I was like, what what's up with that? Oh, and here's the other thing. In the in the very in the very first scene, why would the why would the cop or the the lead detect the lead um lieutenant or whatever, why would he hire him for the case if he did it? What are you doing? Why would you do that? You know what I'm talking about the uh, first scene yeah. when he's like it was Oh yeah. He was he's probably really wishing he didn't hire me for this. And in my head I'm going, "What? You the stupidest everything about crime, everything about that opening 10 minutes did not work for me." Yeah, it it was like, it was totally ripping off the Sherlock Holmes yes. kind of sensibility yeah, cuz oh wow, he put his uh like his walking stick into the wall that was as, so stupid. like a self-defense thing and it was it was fine if you're looking for a Sherlock Holmes type of type of tone here, but the rest of the movie did not follow no. suit, so that's clearly not what that was intended. That was even cartoony for Sherlock Holmes. Like, I was like, is this fucking Austin Powers? Like, what <laughs> are we doing? I was like, please get yeah. to the train. And then we got to the train, and I started to like it more um, as it went along. And I think it ends... I don't know. I, I think I really like the end reveal. How they do it is a little underwhelming. I'm not disputing Nate when, I, when he says that the movie needs to do better at making the audience play along. But the points that we do get to play along with the interrogations and stuff, where the I thought the meat of the movie was really strong. Um, I think we should segue here into final thoughts. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think so too. Jake, what did, final thoughts on Murder on the Orient Express? I don't. It's not a. It's not. A, it's not a bad movie. It's not. I just didn't find myself overly enjoying it very much. There were there were points. I was never bored. I wouldn't say it's dull. I just didn't have a very good time with it. There's not a whole lot to to look forward to other than some decent acting and it's just not enough to to carry the movie for me um i see where the potential was kind of like suburbicon but different i see where the potential was um but i couldn't i couldn't follow along with it to give it a you know a positive rating i wanted to like it and i really liked aspects of it just as a you know as a cumulative whole i didn't you know find myself enjoying it and i, I wanted to i really i really tried but i don't know just overall ended up being a, a meh kind of movie for me Boy, this is Lawrence's of Arabia compared to Suburbicon. But anyway, Nate. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is just a movie that didn't give me anything to walk out of the theater with. The actors that play these characters do a good job, but I don't have enough time with the characters themselves to have any sort of investment to them. Uh, and all in all, the big draws of a mystery movie are just not there for me. I wasn't a fan of the reveal. I wasn't a fan of the the moral changes of this detective and the journey that he goes through. I wasn't a fan of the shots, wasn't a fan of the music. <laughs> and I just can't give even a middle rating with something like that if I was bored and didn't enjoy it. And that's kind of what this movie was for me. This is a shiny off-Broadway play with a bunch of actors that you may or may not enjoy. Um, having a good time chewing the scenery in this kind of whodunit classic whodunit story. Um, if you go in expecting that, I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, people are clearly split on this movie. It's around 50s on Rotten Tomatoes, so this, we kind of represent the dichotomy of what's going on between critics. Um, and I think I'm on the side that says you will enjoy it if you go in expecting these just these stars giving good performances 
and a satisfying mystery. Maybe not all with some bumps on the road, maybe not always satisfyingly told. It's not a perfect movie, for sure, but I think it's a good one. And anyway, we've come to a full stop on this week's episode of The Middle Seats, but before we go, Nate Lungarini, where can you find us on the internet? <laughs> that was probably my favorite transition yet, Tro. <laughs> um, here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, both at The Middle Seats. And our email for any questions, comments, or suggestions is themiddleseatshow at gmail.com. Anything you can do to help the channel grow is greatly appreciated. Be sure to check out our spinoff show, Freeze Frame, another outlet where we get to express our love of movies and entertainment. Last week we had some fun pitting all of our favorite Marvel heroes against each other in a battle of the death scenario. That's available now if you would like to listen to that. It was a really fun show to do. And... This week should be a very popular and fun one as well. We venture into the Upside Down, and we have a spoiler review of Stranger Things Season 2. So that's going to be, I think, I know we're all very excited to do that. Next week, after years and years of waiting, we finally get to review DC's mega team-up superhero blockbuster, Justice League. So you're not going to want to miss that. That'll do it for us. For Nate Lungarini and for Jake Hensler, I'm Andrew Ogier. Keep that seat warm, everyone. We'll be back soon.